previously on Drinks with Tony. Jerry Miner. You know, I find it intriguing. There wasn't. I wasn't even like. It's it, it's it's hard when. Well, yeah. I uh. So I. So how was it getting? And she was like really like eager, like you know, to talk to me. And we could do this. Thank you for having me. And now stay tuned for this week's episode. Okay. And then we're, you know, there's we're gonna talk about a couple of things. We're gonna talk about. Uh, Death of a newspaper man. We're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the San Francisco Chronicle, and then that article you wrote, the uh, piece you wrote for the San Francisco Examiner, because those were the days. And then we're going to talk about uh, growing. What's that? Is that crazy? All right, and then we're going to talk about uh, what's the other thing? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Spanish and versus English congregation, and then we're just we're just going to shoot the shit. That's all we do. That's that's how we do it. Desde la ciudad de San Francisco, estás escuchando a Drinks with Tony. Yo soy Delfín Vigil. Get on the drinks with Tony Show. Yeah. Right, so you're listening to drinks. Lord, take me. Send me. Here I am, Lord, send me. <laughs> you're listening to drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Def- Delfín Vigil. Can I? Is that the right uh, espanol? You say, you say it differently every time. I like God that. Damn it. Okay, so. Uh, today on the show we have Delphine Vihel. You keep saying Vihel, like go to hell, which I, I've never heard that one before, but I like it actually. Oh, so so the emphasis, see, because I've known you for so long, and you never, you this is the first time you've corrected me earlier, and then I forget by the time we get on the mic. So Vihel. No. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> okay, that was different from. I think that was like a third incarnation of it. But I have basically, I look, I have two names. Are two ways of saying my name, and it kind of really was the way I grew up. I grew up like half my life was with a you know a congregation, the Jehovah's Witnesses, with Latino Spanish congregation, where my name would be Delfin Vigil. Actually, it was Junior Vigil because my dad had was Delfin as well. But Vigil is a word in English, so I'm pretty comfortable with you know if the spirit moves you, Delfin Vigil, Vigil, or Delfin Vigil. Either way. Just not Virgil, but I like Vihel better than Virgil. That's for sure. Vihel, rocket. All right. Uh, Delphine is the author of Death of a Newspaper Man, also longtime San Francisco Chronicle reporter and editor, and um, uh, we're both ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. But you went to the Spanish congregation, and I went to the Anglesias Congregation. Yeah, I consider, and I, we've talked about this before. I consider myself a graduate. Of the Jehovah's Witnesses, because I feel like I got an education out of it, and uh, but I'm te- and I'm technically, I don't know what if it's inactive. Is that what they call it? I don't, you know, like I said, I haven't, I've kind of lost track. Unless unless something got lost in the mail, and I haven't received a memo yet. But I think we're both inactive, and they don't want to just they don't want to do anything with us. No, let's go back to when you say you graduated from the Jehovah's Witnesses. I like that term. What is it about that that um. Because because I, I feel the same way. So what what is it? What is the definition for you of be, of graduating from the Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, I think for me it's like just trying to think positively about it. Like you know, I didn't really have much of a choice in what religion I grew up with because I was born and raised as as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, as they like to particularly say. My dad and my mom and dad became Jehovah's Witnesses. I think right, well, a few years before I was born. Um, there's a couple of memories that they share every once in a while when they were both Catholic, but I was born in 1975. And at that point, my dad, my mom and dad had been for about four or five years had been Jehovah's witnesses. So 
you know, I mean, there was a routine, there was ritual, there was knocking on people's doors, learning how to get people tell you to fuck off and slam the door in your face and, and still have the nerve to kind of stand up for what you believe in. Yeah. Even though I don't necessarily believe in a lot of what I was taught in those days, I definitely believe in that kind of sense of conviction and, um, you know, the storytelling as well, as far as like the, you know, the old Testament and just kind of getting a sense of, you know, constantly being, you know, bombarded with lessons and morals and, and then, you know, trying to, trying to take that and like, you know, like you've said before, make lemonade out of lemons. And so as far as I feel like I got an education, I got a pretty good sense of religion, the old Testament, the new Testament, Spanish as well. I mean, that's, you know, I really was, my dad didn't speak Spanish too much in the house when it was like everyday conversations like clean your room or that kind of thing but we were going to the kingdom hall salon del reino four or five times a week so i was constantly um around spanish language so got an education there um learning you know the, the congregation was filled with you know people from mostly el salvador nicaragua a little bit of south america a lot in mexico and so an education of just learning the different plights of people who are immigrants from so many other countries. So that's how I try to look at it, you yeah. know, as far as, um, Oh, getting up on stage at like five years old, yeah. giving, you know, you know, speak public speaking, that kind of thing. And, um, and just kind of being crazy too. I think there's, there, you know, there's, there's a kind of a, a nutty factor of, of, you know, thinking big and that the end of the world's coming at any moment. And here's what you got to do to make it, make it, there's a lot to learn from that. So, I consider myself to be a graduate because I, I consider it to be kind of like a, a master's degree in growing up in a, I think I could say cult at this point. You know, it took me a while to kind of always felt, I always felt a little defensive about that. Well, it's not really a cult, but, um, cause for me, it wasn't really like that. I, I felt like once I kind of stopped and I was done, I kind of casually kind of backed out and said, oh, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. And that was like when I was about 19 or 20 like 1996 or something like that. So 2021, something like that. So, um, so I learned a lot and, uh, and, and, um, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I think it's also interesting with, uh, your, uh, exiting the Jehovah's Witnesses was your dad was cool with, um, with you getting an education and with you doing that, where I think, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, people have different circumstances. I feel like your dad was pretty cool with, uh, I, I, I'm putting words in your mouth, but he was giving you a decision where others may not have, like me, I didn't have a decision. There was no decision. You're either dead and um, not part of our family, Jehovah's Witnesses, or you're in. Um, I don't know if that, well, it was, am I putting words in your mouth or was that? The- no, not necessarily. It's, it, it was, a, my dad had a lot of, um, what's the word? Um, there's a lot of contradiction because he was in the eighties, very pro education, you know, whether it's which like, is ra- which, which, which is, is very rare in the yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses, like so rare, like he probably got busted by the other elders for even saying that. Well, he did. Ironically, he didn't because he was very much a pioneer of getting the Spanish congregation started in the Bay area. Okay. So I was born in 75. He was an elder. In fact, he was what, what what's considered the, top elder of the congregation, which they would call the presiding, presiding overseer. So he was, you know, by the time I was, you know, one, two years old, all my memories were my dad was the main, I mean, I look at it almost like a union organizer. A lot of the folks that we grew up with and that went to our congregation were 
I didn't realize it at the time, were undocumented immigrants with no skills, no language, no apartments, no no place to stay, um, particularly in the 80s when a lot of folks were coming from El Salvador. And so he, you know, he really preached, like, you know, be a good, upstanding citizen, take care of yourself, educate yourself, you know, learn how to speak, um, you know, learn how to learn how to read, learn how to write. A lot of the folks that we worked with didn't even didn't have those skills in Spanish or English um, and and get a job, get a trade. And so he would go up on the stage. And I think, I, you know, some of this is selective memory, but, you know, whenever there would be an issue with the watchtower talking about um, or we call it La Atalaya about um, school and education and they would downplay it, he would definitely say no. Like, (laughs) yeah, he would say no. You like get, there's nothing wrong with having an education and, and, you know, we don't know when the end is coming. And ironically, I was born in 1975, which was the year that every, you know, supposedly uh, the world was going to end or Armageddon was going to come. And one one of the few times, I think, I don't know if it was officially announced, but, you know, certainly was was, um, perpetuated that, that idea. And so... I think my, from what I recall, my dad was, uh, he was presiding overseer. He was, like I said, you know, rural kind of community promotor, I guess is what you call it in, in the Latino community. And um, and he preached uh, to us uh, as a community, as a congregation, you know, it's good to have education. Yeah. And and I you know, I appreciated that. Uh, and I went, so about the time I went to college, I was like, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it to meetings because I, I got homework. So, uh, but... And I appreciate that. So that was those. Those are some of the good good things. It wasn't all rainbows and sunshine, that's for sure. Which nothing really is, I don't think. Um, also, I mean, me and you have had this discussion uh, over and over again. When you when you went to the English congregate, when you when you had the experience of an English speaking congregation, you went, "Wow, this isn't the Jehovah's Witnesses I know." <laughs> Definitely, and that's it's like a major for me. I mean, I certainly zoned in on that. I remember going, I think around. 15, I became friends with someone who was a musician into records and all the things that I loved. He, you know, he had a Depeche Mode t-shirt or front 242 t-shirt. And, uh, That's how we spotted each other. Yeah, it was pretty much. You, played, you, you know, you, you try to find, and this is, you know, my growing up and, you know, I don't, most people didn't necessarily think that I was, you know, Latino because my dad's Peruvian, but my mom is Irish San Francisco. So I'm, I'm half Latino, half gringo basically. And, um, and it was hard to grow up. When I was a little kid, I had like really reddish blonde hair. And I really often felt like I didn't speak Spanish as well. I didn't really feel like I had too many close friends in the congregation. And this is early day San Francisco. And then we moved to Benicia. And there were no congregations in basically outside of San Francisco that I recall. I mean, you know, in areas like Vallejo and Fairfield and, you know, the in those days uh, we were starting what you called groups yeah. like you had to kind of work with the society and and earn your stripes as a whatever it's called to um to become a congregation so my dad was like a real that was kind of the majority of his time as an elder that's what he did he organized all these book studies and and he was one of the elders that would go to all these different congregations so i had a pretty good sense of the spanish congregation from like san jose to santa rosa because I was, you know, at least one Sunday a month going with my dad and getting to know all the different families that were Spanish-speaking Jehovah's Witnesses. It wasn't until I was about 14, 15, became friends with a guy who was a musician, went to his house, and it was like, you know, it's time to say a prayer before before we have dinner. And it was, it was like 
Dear Jehovah, thank you for the pizza and root beer. And I was like, what in the world are they talking about? Because in Spanish, it's like, querido Jehová, gracias por la comida. It's so passionate. It's like, we are so thankful for this food and like... You know, we have a cousin here who just came from from Nicaragua who's, you know, who has who's been homeless for the last two weeks or whatever it is. And it was like there was a sense of like the religion was in the Spanish congregation. I, I associated it with like a struggle and like dignity and kind of like um, and hope of like, well, this is going to end well for us. And with the Spanish, with the English congregation, I just start I actually realized, oh, my God, some of these teachings are kind of <laughs> are kind of um, take themselves pretty seriously and it's kind of boring too. I mean, everything sounds a little more romantic in Spanish for yeah. sure. And um, and it was very much more Little House on the Prairie vibe when you went to the English congregation. The English just, everything was just more strict and stuffy. Even when you said hello to people, like you, you know, Spanish. I remember going to English congregation. You'd give you know, a sister a kiss on the cheek <laughs> because that's how you said hello in Latin America. And and remember, it was like a real shocking thing. There was like this. You know, sixty-year-old lady, and I, you know, was like twelve, and I went to give her a kiss on the cheek, and it was like scandal. Like, what, like, you know, what kind of, what kind of, um, what are your, what are your intentions here? And I was like, I'm just trying to say hello, like we all, you know. So yeah, I definitely noticed that um, it was like a subculture within a subculture. It was like two totally different communities, and I also had distinct memories of getting you know especially as we were trying to make the congregation established and like okay you know we'd rather not have the sunday meetings be at five o'clock on us you know maybe we can have the the 10 o'clock shit you know slot and no jehovah doesn't want that you know (laughs) we would get that from the english congregation that that stuff happened a lot and um you just brought back a memory because i remember when the spanish congregation came into the um came in to use our kingdom hall when we were in a berlin game and it was always like, oh, oh, the Spanish, they always got the jack shift of the, uh, the Sunday. Yeah. It was just like, we've been here for years. We got the 10 o'clock meeting. We got the one o'clock meeting. You guys come in at, uh, how do you say, uh, 1 a.m. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a double standard for yeah. sure. And it was like second class citizens. I mean, it wasn't always like that, but I definitely have distinct memories of feeling like eh, this is kind of, and I, and I have memories of my dad being, you know, really irked by that kind of stuff and yeah. saying like I, I you know you know when your dad's the elder you're you're kind of stuck after the meeting you're the first one there and the last to leave and oh, you're wow. and you're stuck there <laughs> and you know one way or the other you'd get a sense of what what the emergency meetings were about and you know my dad really would always make a point to say no Jehovah never said anything about the Spanish congregation not being able to have the 10 o'clock shift after, you know, the 10 o'clock meeting slot after five years of five o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. that's not okay. And right. and we're going to change that. And, and I was really proud of him for that. Yeah. This whole thing, yeah. It's in, and there's another interesting thing about um, a good takeaway from growing up Jehovah's Witnesses is now that like there's people like me and you that are out and others, I feel like we understand each other on such a visceral level where I wouldn't get that if I just grew up like in a normal way. So even though we kind of grew up in a fucked up way, there's something cool about it where it's just like, you know, I mean, when me and you hang out, I just, I'm like, I walk away going, oh, someone understands me. And, you know, I, and I have, and I've had that even with people where I've just met them and they're like, oh yeah, I grew up Jehovah's Witness. We talk. And then we're just like, and now we're friends because we survived. There's like an alumni survival or survivor's group absolutely like, or when we, we were talking about that Leia Ramini documentary which I thought was really fantastic yeah. 
I mean, I, I related to every single one of those persons more than I had realized. I mean, I, like I, most of my experiences were, you know, I didn't get Christmas. I didn't get birthdays. I remember people making fun of me, knocking on the doors and that kind of stuff. And, and also at one point realizing, oh, my God, what the hell have I been, you know, I don't believe in this, you know, as far as the overall end game here of live forever in a paradise on earth, never get sick, you know, no blood transfusion. I started realizing, you know, but not feeling like, like I wanted to tell other Jehovah's Witnesses how to think, but it felt really nice when you would meet somebody who had some kind of struggle and you realize, oh, they made it to the, you know, to, to the side of the line or whatever it is. And, or even like when you're a kid, I remember when you would hear stories about like Michael Jackson or Prince being a Jehovah's Witness. Prince, I don't think that came till later, right? But Michael, right. Michael Jackson, you or George Benson, I remember that was oh, a big okay. one. I remember like, wow, somebody, somebody did something with their life and they're Jehovah's Witness. See, it's possible. Right. That kind of thing. You kind of longed for some kind of connection to know, to know that, um, you know, you're looking for some way to make sense because it's a really hard religion to grow up in. That, and that's one thing I, I always, I think probably a, also a very big distinguishing factor between growing up in the English congregation of the Jehovah's Witnesses versus the Spanish. What I experienced was, you know, the English congregation, in my experience, they were just always so much more strict in pointing out when you screwed up, mm-hmm. you know, and really enforcing the rules to like, you know, to the T, which I, you know, I understand why, but in the Spanish congregation, you know, if you, if you got, dis, somebody got disfellowshipped in the English congregation, it was a lot easier to say, okay, I want to say easier. Logistically, if you wanted to enforce the shunning rule, you'd, you'd have a better go at it than in the Spanish congregation because by very nature, the Spanish, you know, in most of the families I grew up with, you had four or five brothers and sisters. Odds are one of them is going to get disfellowshipped. That's just kind of like if you do it's like a numbers game on how hard it is to follow the rules of being a Jehovah's Witness. And although I'm sure people were shunned, and I know and I do have memories of that, there was, I don't know, there always felt like there was a little bit more um, understanding and love in the Spanish congregation. And maybe just that's because I knew those families more than I knew the English congregation. But, um, but on a logistical level, you know, typically you had families living together. And, um, and so you couldn't just not see them or, or and, um, so, so I'm, I'm obviously biased towards, towards that. And, and it helped me not have a really resentful experience. I mean, I, if I think about it enough, I get, I get pretty irked about opportunities I could have had, or, you know, if I had not been preparing for the end of the world at eight years old, that would have been, you know, it would have been nice to, you know, put that energy into, you know, learning how to play the trombone or something like that or you know um or just not being stressed out all the time you know that yeah. that would have been nice so I, I get i get a little you know i when i when i see it cropping up or if i do something publicly you know with music or writing you know to feel like if it's you know, one of the hang-ups i've always had is 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 not really fear of failure but fear of success because if oh if it gets you know if something breaks oh. through and gets more successful then you know because you got those morals and those uh, uh, those um, what are they like? Uh, not parables, but like um, the lessons you learn from all the Old Testament stories that it all went to shit when you know once things you know were good in the worldly sense. And so I still have to fight those demons for sure. I definitely get I get that a lot. I that's yeah. I like that you brought that up. I fight them, and I find myself even self sabotaging myself, and 
then I have to take a step back and go, wait, where is this coming from? Oh yeah, if this happens, then this means I'm drawing closer to Satan, which I don't even believe in anymore, but it's still like deep back in there, you know? Yeah, it's in your DNA. It's it's been yeah. it's it's been programmed. And I and I I think for me, like also getting into journalism, becoming a reporter for the Chronicle in particular was it felt like a um again, the graduate thing. I have these memories of 24th and Mission with my dad and typically probably my sisters and my mom as well because uh, that's where we would start the preaching because the Spanish congregation pretty much that was like that was the place to preach and you would go into all the apartment buildings around see the congregation was at 26 in Alabama and so the whole territory as they call it for when you go knocking on doors and start talking about the end of the world. Um, was the mission district and you would knock on these doors and invariably somebody would let you in and you'd have, you know, conversations about, you know, loved ones dying and being resurrected and, and this and that. When I became a reporter for the Chronicle, also on mission street, fifth and mission, 20 blocks down, I would go into some of these same buildings and do like a, typically like a, I have distinct memories of doing stories where somebody was murdered or uh, and it was either a gang-related shooting or just some kind of random drive-by shooting, some violent crime story, because I did a lot of those uh, for the Sunday news shift. And, and I remember I'd go in these buildings, and it would be like, you know, they say the sense of smell brings back memories. Oh. I'd be like, oh, my goodness. Like, I have been in maybe not the same apartment, but certainly like that same building or that same kind of area where you, maybe it's like the same scent of mold. I don't know what it was. Right, right. But it would be like, oh, God, I'd, I'd have all these distinct memories coming back of like, basically going into people's homes in a very unusual way to talk about things that they probably wouldn't normally talk, but to have the nerve to knock on their door. So that again goes back to like what, what I tried to get out of the whole experience to like, you know, take those skills and lessons or, you know, and, and put them into my career. I mean, I gotta tell you, it's the same reason I started drinks with Tony was so I can learn to connect with people outside of the Jehovah's witnesses and, and try to understand how to be how to be okay with people who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses, and um, yeah, I forgot my point, but but and and then that just kind of blossomed into now it's you know now it's a completely def- different definition. But if I didn't grow up a Jehovah's Witness, maybe I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Well, I wouldn't be here talking to you because we wouldn't have grown up Jehovah's Witnesses together. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, I do remember how we met though. Do you remember? I remember exactly. Oh my God! Yes. Uh, yeah. You go ahead. <laughs> Because uh, I was just going through, this is, I wrote a story for the Chronicle in 2005. I remember exactly when it was. It was November of 2005, which is 14 years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. 15, right. 14. Going to be 14 years ago yeah. this year. I had written a story about Echo and the Bunnymen, my yeah. favorite band of all time. And, um, and then you had written, you had wrote, you wrote me an email and then we made the connection. Oh my God, I know Nephi. Okay. All these Jehovah's Witness folks. And um, so little. Well, the thing, the thing about the Echo and the Bunnyman piece was that it was so personal. The, the piece that you wrote was so personal. And Echo and the Bunnyman holds a special place in my heart because that was a show that I went to at the Greek theater and I was just turned 18 and my parents said, well, you know, if you're, you know, like a couple years earlier, they're like, you're not going to go to want to go to concerts like you keep asking us because they're worldly. But if you're studying and a pioneer, then you'll want, then you can go, but you won't want to go but you will be able to when you're 18. 
So I was 18. So I was like, all right, I'm going to Echo and the Bunnymen tonight. And my dad was like, what? You're leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses? And it was like a big fight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, um, and then, I, then there was the fight. And then I got there. And then there was like the first girl I loved. I kissed her during the song Lips Like Sugar. And Echo and the Bunnymen meant so much to me. And, I could, and, and you, you went really personal with your story on yeah. that. So that was the connection. I'm like, I just have to email this guy and tell him what Echo and the Bunnyman means to me because it does have a Jehovah's Witness meaning to me. Having no clue that you had any affiliation with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Definitely. I mean, my Jehovah's Witness experience was definitely trying to connect with, I guess, the modern rock new wave crowd of the Bay Area. Yeah. And, you know, whenever I would go to these other congregations to accompany my dad who would be giving the Sunday talk, the sermon, whatever you want to call it, you know, you'd always kind of look, oh, somebody's got slightly longer sideburns yeah. or, or whatever, whatever kind of subversive thing you could slip in. Yeah, and, yeah. and then, and then, you know, and I had, and I have distinct memories of friends like, you know, there's like the Redwood City crowd and the San Mateo crowd, San Francisco, Oakland. And, um, and we would change, we'd exchange cassette tapes and things like yeah. that. And basically, you know, kept in touch whenever their parents or their, you know, dad really would come and give a yeah. give a sermon at our congregation and you know all that kind of stuff and but the bunnyman that's kind of like the way nick cave is for you in the bad seeds yeah. uh, that's basically bunnyman and for some re- weird reason um god love him my dad always let me go to concerts at like 15 years old i wow. there yeah i don't know why he he would i basically would i don't really know what um kind of a how I hypnotized him to letting me do that. But, um, <laughs> but I went to, you know, so I had a lot of experiences of, of, you know, you know, Ian McCulloch getting his autograph at soundcheck and stuff when I was like 14, 15 oh. and stuff like that. And so the story I wrote for the Chronicle in 2005 was about all the years from like basically the age of 14, 15 to like at that point I would have been 30. And, um, yeah, it was a really special fun story to write. So, yeah. Yeah. I I'm so glad I. S- Thank you, Jehovah, for the opportunity to write about Echo and the Bunnymen. And thank you, Jehovah, for the opportunity to write an email to Delphine about Echo and the Bunnymen. And now we're here. And if I could also say, Gracias, Jehovah, por la oportunidad de escuchar Echo and the Bunnymen. Ah, and mi corazón, uh, Delphine. And also, you know, I did the sound at the congregation a lot of the time. So, you know, uh, meaning the microphones and the the music that you would play. And so I would um, always had like the kind of what you're doing right now with your one earphone in uh-huh. and I would have my, these cassette tapes that I would listen to <laughs> while, while um, you know, I just time it so you, you know, you would raise your hand because, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses really want you to participate, right, in, in a lot of the, the meetings. And so I would make sure that uh, I'd do like the raise my hand two or three times and then the rest of the way I could pretty much listen to new order or whatever it is, you know, well, you know, just to kind of, you know, find some sort of sanity really from just boredom more than anything. It's just really, really a boring way to grow up. Um, so yeah. Yeah. It's about boring the shit out of you. I was just talking about this the other day because I relate, everything I relate to is music, like music and film and literature. And when, and I was realized when I was a kid at the kingdom hall, I would get like a journey tape at home and I would like listen to it over and over and then at the kingdom hall I would just play it in my mind 
And it was like a DJ in my mind when they were going over all the boring shit over and over. And I had like controlled my mind to be a DJ. Yeah. So I always have music in my head and there's always a theme song. Yeah. And it's because of the weird shit that you actually got to put something in your ear. Because it, was, yeah. it was positioned in the back corner of the, of the uh, Kingdom Hall. Yeah. And um, so I was always the right ear, I remember, because it was or at least the memories of the years that I would sneak in a Walkman. Or also sometimes I'd listen to the 49ers or the Giants too. I did that as well. <laughs> and so I think like sometimes I would, there was other you know people in the congregation and they knew they, I would, they could come to me for the score you yeah. know, and find out, find out if, uh, if Joe Montana had come through or not. Oh my God! I, we did the same thing. We we had we had ways of keeping score. Someone would always have if for the big games. Someone would always have uh, there'd be one transistor radio, and we would approach them at some point during the meeting, going, "Where are we at? Where are we at?" Because we had to be at the goddamn Kingdom Hall. We couldn't watch the game. Yeah, yeah. Do what you got to do, right? Yeah. All right. Um, I almost forgot. Uh, I oh, I did forget that uh, your your music project, Amores Vigilantes. Amores Vigilantes. That's pretty good, yeah. Oh, okay. Vigilantes. 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 You guys did... Vigilantes. Yeah. It's basically... <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've always played music. always been in a band one form or another since about oof, like 15, something like that. And grew up with the, in the East Bay with um, Gilman Street crowd. Yeah. Typically, I didn't... I wasn't really into punk rock too much, but I really admired... You know, in Benicia, where I went to high school, there were this, just all these th- people. They had their own record labels. They had their own magazines. They had their own art galleries. They had warehouses where they all shared spaces. And I just really was enamored um, by the spirit of just yeah. kind of... So I grew up around that. And um, so I've always been in some kind of... You know, I try to challenge myself to do every year something with music, something uh, with journalism, something with uh, fiction. And, you know, I host a lot of film festival stuff. And, and, and music... Um, you know, as is the it tends to be the. I don't know if your experience with musicians, but they're not the most reliable people in the world. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I don't know how to play the drums, and you know I can essentially play rhythm guitar and and write some chords and sing in key here and there, and I have extremely talented musicians who are kind of from that uh, Benicia crowd. And, no, no, oh, okay. no, actually, oh, okay. most of them are not. Maybe one, no, I don't think actually anymore. There was one for a while, but um, but I haven't played music with him. So the, the guys I play music with, I did grow up with in Benicia, and uh, have been playing music. And we put out a couple of records, and uh, we've had our songs for like little indie films. And we once had our songs um, licensed through Starbucks. That was pretty cool. Oh wow! Meaning like if you went to any Starbucks in, uh, I think it was USA. I don't think it was worldwide, but it was any Starbucks across the country. Uh, f- we were on the rotations. We had three or four songs that they were playing. This was MySpace days, so it w- and we would get like suddenly we'd go from like five plays to like five hundred. And uh-huh. and what really cool story is the guitarist, well, multi instrumentalist Casey Staubach, uh, worked at Starbucks at the time, and he actually was like literally serving a latte. And then our songs came on, and he's like, ah, oh, he thought somebody put it on as a joke and all that. So, wow. so we've uh, yeah, we've and we played gigs, you know, you know, like the typical San Francisco venues like Cafe du Nord and Bottom of the Hill and this and that. And we were associated with a great label called Three Ring Records that did a lot of uh, Ricardo Parasol was on that label and um, well let's see Scrabble's a great band Society of Rockets they're still going um, 
a lot of people who are just, you know, working folks who still have music in their blood and, and constantly working on something. So, so we got the name from the New Order song, Love Vigilante. Uh, it was going to be a solo project. And then, um, then we found out there was a New Order cover band called Love Vigilantes that everybody kept confusing us with. And we're definitely not a cover band. Um, so we changed it to Spanish, to Amores Vigilantes. And speaking of um, now speaking of Ricardo Paracel, let's uh, shift to the San Francisco Chronicle. She was she because um, you you start you were had a part in starting the ninety six hours section of the San Francisco Chronicle. I believe she was the first cover, right? Was she? Yeah, she definitely was. Yeah. So when I was at the Chronicle, I was doing you know I started off. Uh, my first job there was the Sporting Green. Actually, I was I did the baseball box scores, horse racing results. Uh, sports page, what they called the agate, yeah. and I don't. Remember, it was a very complicated process. You had to get it from a wire service and then like recode it, and then spot check it for errors, and then work with the sports uh, department to you know lay out the pages with the design. It was a really, really fun process. I loved it. It was a great, great job. And then eventually started working news. Started and, and pretty much right off the bat, I started like around ninety nine, two thousand, and I had already worked at another newspaper before, so I was writing stories any chance I could. It was a really exciting time. And the Chronicle was always had a reputation of being a pretty pretty um, conservative, uh, certainly not like championing what we saw in the Bay Area of like a really burgeoning uh, arts and film scene. And so I started this idea of like, well, we should do a section that's specifically for local musicians, local filmmakers, local art galleries, and... Um, I don't know what, I mean, and at first there was a little bit of resistance, but there was enough chaos going on at the time. They're like, oh, okay, I guess so, go for it. And then we just kept pushing. Uh, it was a few folks that I worked with on it. I think, uh, I don't know, he was there in the beginning, Jose Antonio Vargas, who ended up becoming the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, incredible journalist uh, who's undocumented and who's come out. He was part of that group where we started, let, let, let's basically let, let's work on, you know, doing a better job of, celebrating an authentic Bayer experience. And so that launched the 96 hours section. It was really, um, I was around, I don't know, 2000, I don't actually remember, 2004 maybe? 2004, 2005. And then there was some, ironically, it was always the music where there was so much resistance to local San Francisco music. They were saying, oh, they're too lazy. They're not gonna, you know, they're not good enough. They're not going to come through. You're not going to be able to come up with anything consistent. So we started with, I think, the band, Barry of Bandwidth, which yeah. is, yeah. And it was, I think there was, we thought, well, if we could do one a month, that'll be 12. We ended up doing one a week for, it was 52 a year yeah. for like three or four years. And I don't know if, I don't know if it's still going, but. No, it's gone. It's I was gone. the last one on it. Yeah. I, I did it. I think I did it for about three or four years. Yeah. And then I was I was even, I was even writing Bandwidth. Um, when I was on set for Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, I was yeah. turning in my articles. Yeah. Well, there was a, no, there was a ton of content out there. I mean, it yeah. was basically, it was like, all you got to do is look through the listings yeah. of all the different clubs and you can see that there's always somebody playing and then just go and do a little Q&A with them. And, and Ricardo was the first one. We put her on the cover and it was like, it actually was a pretty um, epic moment, sort of, yeah. as my son would say. <laughs> Epicness. It was like... Uh, I was really proud of that because it was like we're getting 
really authentic, soulful, quality musicians at an exciting time in their careers. And, yeah. and like, that's our job for Christ's sake. Like our job is to do that. And, um, and we, you know, we had, I don't know if 96 hours, 96 hours still around. I don't oh know. no. David Wiegand shut that down as fast as he could. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what he was known for. Exactly. Um, and then Ricard is still doing great musically, and then it's, so that's what's that's what's so much fun about it. I remember I got um, Death Angel, the, the, the thrash band, and I asked them because I was like, I don't think they've ever been covered in the Chronicle. These guys are iconic to the metal scene for like with the Metallica days, and it blew my mind. They had never had Chronicle coverage, and I got in touch with them, and he's like, Oh my god! And the lead singer was so stoked. And I was just like, dude, I used to play you on college radio like all the time. I loved you guys. I can't believe you didn't get coverage. It blew my mind. Yeah, I remember that feeling as well. I remember feeling from a reporter's point of view, feeling weirdly insecure that, um, oh, the Chronicle, you know, now you want to write or, you know, they wouldn't be interested. And it was in almost every circumstance. It was like, oh, my God, you want to write about us? It was it, it really worked because and this is how I sold it to the editors. Like, well, you know, you get. You want to reach a younger audience, right? You want to, you know, it's not a bad thing to acknowledge. You know, it's it's good to realize you want to diversify your audience and get yeah. and 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 do your job to tell the stories of the whole community at large. And I'm like, well, you know, if you when I remember being in a meeting and trying to like, it wasn't too hard to convince them. But what I did was like, well, you take a band. There's five people in the band. It, you know, a lot of them are you know, they all have mostly have day jobs and, and trying to balance their careers with their passion for music and pay rent. Rent wasn't too bad at that point, but it was getting pretty out of control. Suddenly you've got five people who are going to be wanting to buy that paper and share it with their family. And, and that's what happened. Yeah. It was like, Oh, it felt like a legitimizing of, of what they were doing. And which is again, what the newspaper is supposed to do. Right. You're supposed to, um, be alert to what people are doing in your community and, and, and celebrate their story. So that was always my approach while I was at the paper. Yeah. And, and I did it for as long as I could until I found a way to fuck it up basically. <laughs> and now segue to how did Dell fuck it up? Um, actually, I don't think you fucked it up. I think you did the right thing and you stood by your guns, but maybe looking back, you have a different yeah. opinion on it, but yeah. let's take, let's take, let's take the audience through the story from the beginning. So, sure. Your, um, so they were started to pay out employees and there was, was it an NDA? They were, um, it was like, I mean, really what it was, was, uh, everything I had signed up for and what I believed in and what idealistically attracted me to newspaper journalism, probably with a touch of the crazy Jehovah's Witness stuff too, of, of feeling like I want, you know, to believe that this is newspaper is going to last forever. This career is going to last forever. So I was... Uh, this would have been 10 years ago, 2009. My career was going great at the paper. I was doing front page stories, uh, breaking news, because I, I did, at the time it was very odd, I did one day a week breaking news. I, spoke, I speak Spanish, so I, I had a lot of opportunities to do Spanish interview folks when there was Spanish language uh, necessary. And that, sadly, often came in handy with you know uh, a lot of tragic breaking news, gangs and things like that, and shootings and um, stabbings and et cetera. But, um, I also did features and I was, I was, this is kind of before social media. So I never really got to kind of do what I think a lot of reporters are kind of have to do now, which is kind of brand themselves as like, you know, I didn't, I didn't use any of that stuff. I just would kind of write story, move on to the next one. 
and it was going great. I loved it. I really loved my job. I never took it for granted. I felt like I was, you know, this is what I wanted to do from the, from sixth grade. Uh, that's I wrote for the school paper and I thought this is what I'm going to do. And, uh, pretty much failed every other class and I always did great in journalism and got my first job out of newspapers. I mean, out of high school uh, for the Contra Cross at times. So I had a long, at that point, you know, that's pretty much what I did with my life. And I grew up, I mean, when I went to the Chronicle in particular, you know, there was all these like kind of really um, union stories of like, you know, we don't put up with this. And like, I'm, and I remember really, really believing in it. Like, oh, this is cool. This Chronicle is a union paper. You know, and it's a big city paper and it's got a lot and it's got a great history. Uh, never really one that I'll think that, you know, reached its potential as like a, you know, San Francisco Chronicle really, I mean, I don't, I don't mean, you know, doing justice to San Francisco the way, say, the New York Times does for New York or something right. like this. Oh. So there was always that kind of inferiority complex. And I was really thought, well, that's going to be my challenge of my career. Like, I really want to take that. I want people to think of the Chronicle as like, you know, the, I want it to be the most, I remember I used to, th- you know, when we were, you know, we'd talk with friends and we'd get inspired, we'd be like, San Francisco is the most beautiful city in the world. It should have the most beautiful journalism. So we don't, we're not going to try to be the New York Times. We're not going to try to be the Washington Post. The kinds of arguments you would hear in the newsroom of like, what's our identity and this and that. And I think the San Francisco Examiner, the old Examiner, did a really good job of, of being a charming, personality-driven paper. And I, afternoon. Yeah. And just the, the, you know, we did it for a while with the Chronicle PM. Anyways, things were going great, but it was going terrible for everyone who had helped me up to that point. So many people that I had looked up to that had taught me editors, you know, they were losing their job. Photographers were the, some of the first to go. And it was just a real bummer. And I remember feeling like, I don't you know, like this sense of like, oh, you'll be fine. But, you know, you know, it's not going to work out. And I'm just being really angry and feeling like this is just like, you know, this this is, you know, people are being treated unfairly here. You know, we're being taken advantage. We're not getting the full story of what is going wrong in the newspaper business and it's our job to do something about it just like we do for everybody else. So this was this is kind of the general terms that I would speak in and 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 essentially you were saying we need to report on ourselves. We need yeah. to do coverage on what's happening at the Chronicle. You need just like, you know, okay, like I remember the time when the Giants were going to um move uh, in the 80s. I don't know if you remember that. They were oh, going yeah. they were going to move to San Jose or or something along those lines. Oh, and it was like, this is not okay. Yeah. We're not putting up with this, you know. We're and you know, and there was a sense of like journalists are going to lead the way to say, hey, what, what's the real story? Why are you leaving? And right. I don't remember what the details were, but there was the spirit of like, we're not just going to do what we're told. We're going to actually, we're going to ask questions. We're going to challenge. We're going to, we're going to, and then you have this kind of sense of like, and we're we're a long history of a great union that's really fought to make this job, you know. So, you know, at that point, I would have been in my late twenties, early thirties, and I was thinking. I want to be a part of this. You know, I want to be a part of like solving this. And I would have a lot of conversations where like, yeah, but there was always this sense of fear. So all these people that, I, that had kind of taught me, it doesn't matter if it's an athlete who makes a million dollars a year, if it's a politician, you get in their faces and you, ch-. and these same people were like, well, these are scary times and we can't, we can't, you know, you know, it's now's not the time to challenge. Now is not the time to question. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this is nuts. Like, this is, it, it's always now is the time now is always the time and um and i had uh so long story short as far as how it ended uh you know i was not behaving i was i was you know 
kind of in my own way trying to organize and motivate. And sometimes it worked. I mean, I, like I said, I would get a lot of people egging me on. And, um, and I was working slightly with the union. And I say slightly because they were not very organized to be. You know, and I started to realize, oh, wait a minute. This is a lot of this is just image. Like they really don't know what the fuck they're doing is really what I started to realize. It was just kind of like, oh, we're an established union and we've been around for however many years and, and we just do the right thing and the right thing works out. Well, it, it, what I quickly learned is, you know, it doesn't work that way. You know, it, you, you can't, this isn't, this isn't, um, they didn't have the answer. Nobody had the answer. And, um, but I wanted to kind of continue fighting. So I worked with them to make us, this was around 2009 and, and the Chronicle, Owners, the Hearst Corporation, said they were going to shut down the paper oh, I remember that. if we didn't basically do everything they said. And I was like, "What?" Like, I'm like, "Here's an opportunity." Yeah. I remember saying, "Look, we'll, we'll say, well, let's take the name, let's call them on their bluff, and let's say, all right, well, we'll get the opportunity to buy the name and we'll turn the Chronicle into the first worker-owned, union-driven newspaper." And I was convinced that this was going to work out, and um, so I made a public. I did interviews. Per, for, it was my birthday actually, and I bought an ad in the Examiner. And the Examiner. So, so, so let's back up yeah. r- real quick because, so, the Hearst is coming in. What was your what was your beef regarding, um, exactly? Because I you you talked about that the the um, your your mentors were being laid off. They were losing their their gigs. The the uh, the Chronicle was having a sense of oh we need to be careful what we report on. Were they being careful of the of their internal struggles and the Hearst Corporation, or was it everything? I think ultimately there was no real information getting out to the public about um, the struggles of the Chronicle. It was all basically corporate language whenever there were layoffs or whenever, you know, right. like it was just, so there the, was nobody really, no, and I don't still think there really is right. anybody saying the way we would do with the Giants or the 49ers, right. you know, the, the kind of this, the sort of concept of like, let's just not take the answers that are spoon fed to us. Let's challenge and let's question and let's dig and let's, let's use social media to like, and find innovative ways to get the word out to the public and what, you know, so there was all kinds of factors. At that point, there was a very defeated workforce that just kind of like, I just don't want to lose my job, man. Yeah. You know, there was that. Like, you know, like, I, I don't know. There was a real detachment, generationally speaking. My generation in particular was not very connected to the union. There was like, oh, it's the younger generation's fault. They just don't care. And and I think that the, the management, and I don't think this was just the Chronicle. I think this was across the country. They started seeing, oh, these are just... I wasn't quite the millennial generation, whatever we're called. Um, it was like, well, let's just kind of give them more work and more jobs and take away, you know, stability and union rights and that kind of thing. And it was kind of like, well, that's just the way it is these days. Right. And so my feeling was when I saw that they said they were going to shut down the paper, I thought, so hey, I, so I'm just yeah. a, so the, it's, instead of the Chronicle reporting on itself, the Chronicle was giving itself a, a PR uh, vibe while they would go after it, like like they they were giving the Hearst Corporation a PR vibe instead of going after them like they would, um, for a close you know threatening to close down the paper and all this stuff. It was very 
washed over. Let's not talk about it. But if the Giants are going to go to San Jose, we're going to get right up their asses and make sure. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. And it's, and it's essentially, and it's understandable yeah. that, you know, that the Chronicle wasn't going to allow us to put on the front page right. that actually the managed, the managed, you know, is inadequate. Right. Like the level of scrutiny you'd give to say the Giants bullpen. Like who gives the you know the Chronicle sports writers or any sports writers the right to to question you know Bumgarner or Tim right. Lincecum? But they don't even think in those terms. They just do it. Like oh, yeah. they question Bruce Bochy's every single move. Yeah. So my whole point was like, why don't we do that yeah. to our you know we take that same spirit? Okay, so we can't do it in the Chronicle, you know, because you could lose your job. I remember. Around that time, an Associated Press reporter almost got fired for posting something on social media saying, criticizing of the most recent layoff, saying something like, I don't understand why all the people that I know are great at their jobs are getting laid off when, when um, the management clearly doesn't know what they're doing. Something pretty, pretty uh, PG rated. Yeah. And that reporter getting like reprimanded and like all of the journalism circles saying, oh, you shouldn't have said that. And I'm just like, what in the hell are you guys like? Why? So I all that kind of really said, fuck that. I'm going to I'm going to make a statement. And I remember working with the union and they, we were going to work together. And we did. There was a couple of people who helped who helped me put together. I thought, OK, we can't do it in the Chronicle. but We can do it in the Examiner. And this would be really I thought this is going to be really um, a, a major statement because the Hearst Corporation used to own the Examiner. And I thought, I'm going to find a subversive way to to let to say, hey, let's start a, let's fight back. Basically, yeah. is what I wanted to do. It didn't work. It was a total total. I mean, I mean, I haven't looked at it in a while, but it would have been it would have been ten years ago in March. And I got a lot of people. I just basically kind of wrote like a manifesto, very sentimental, kind of like, hey, you know, this newspaper's been around. You know, the, basically the sent this the the message was journalists own journalism. We can't wait for other people to do something about it. We have to be the ones to do about it. We do something about it. Let's call them out. And it was, you know, it didn't really have what we say in the nonprofit world, which is what I've been doing the last 10 years. Didn't have a call to action. It didn't really say like, here's what you can do. Here's what you should do. So, so it was kind of like, you know, I just kind of, and and it looked like it was just me, which it wasn't how it started. It was actually, I was working with members of the union at that time. And, um, but I wasn't really agreeing. We weren't agreeing, uh, of how to go about it, but they were also, I I remember I have a distinct memory of one of the union leaders saying something along the lines of, well, you know, I'm really proud of you for doing this. This is really cool. If it works out, we'll be right there with you. If it doesn't, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. And I just remember being like, oh my God. And, and, you know, I, and I'm being really remember being really bitter about that. Like, God, like, like you're supposed to be like the top fighter here. Yeah. And it was, I remember it was like, I, I wish I would have wrote, wrote down in some diary exactly what he said, but it was like, yeah, I hope this works out, but if it doesn't, you're on your own kid. Yeah. And that's what happened. It didn't work out. And, uh, and I think actually most the, the feedback I got from my colleagues in private was like, wow, way to go. But like, you know, it felt like the disfellowship shunning thing, or at least maybe I projected that onto myself. And that's what I mean by finding a way to fuck it up, you know? Well, and, and then let's clarify. So the, you did it for the examiner, which is the other newspaper that has, that's essentially, uh, in the, and it's not even as big as, I mean, it used to be a really, it used to be a big paper. It used to be a two paper town. Right. 
So and you and you you purchased that you purchased ad space to do the article, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they gave me a huge discount too. They were like, "Oh, they they, like, yeah. they thought it was cool." I remember they were really like, "Wow!" Mm-hmm. So I think you know, really, honestly, if I had, if I look back, so I don't regret it necessarily, but I acknowledge that it didn't work and it ended my career. Like the next day, you mentioned David Wiegand, he took stories away from me. That next day, like I came, no, that day, I remember I had a bunch of stories, and they're like, "You're not writing anything." Basically, they didn't say outright, but it was like, "You're not." You, you know, all, like three or four stories that I had scheduled were like, no, somebody else is doing those now. Yeah. And um, I was like in the vice principal's office and it was like, um, and, and I got fired uh, in the next round. And, and actually the union came to me right then. They're like, hey, wait a minute. We think you got falsely, we think you have a court case here mm-hmm. because you got, they shouldn't have fired you for using your freedom of speech can you get behind this? And I was like, we're not going to, if I do that, nobody's going to, it's going to look like it's me trying to win some lawsuit. Um, my wife was pregnant at the time. I was like, I, I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't want to, this is not going to be one in the courtroom. It's going to be one in the newsroom. That's, right. that was my answer. And, um, and I've never been back since. So, yeah. At the same time, I think, um, I don't think journalism has gone anywhere better in any way at all i mean my may you're a lot closer to it than i am but i just my faith in journalism is kind of like eh. well, i just think the standards are so much lower now yeah like exactly. i what i've always said and i it's 2019 but i would I, I think it still is relevant is if you take a newspaper from january what is it the third today 2019 and let's take the chronicle january 3rd 2019 take the san jose mercury news january 3rd 2019 the Mercury News still exists. I hope. I think it I does. Think it I think it does. Yeah. You take that and compare it to the San Jose Mercury News of 1989, and you're going to see better quality journalism. Yeah. And that's not like, well, because the old days we did it better. No, it's because in the old days, or in those days, you paid people right. to copy edit. You paid people to be designers and to be photographers. Yeah. And you you didn't have all the bells and whistles of social media to really, you know, find innovative and creative ways to, to, you know, reinvent and revolutionize the message. But, but I think people have just kind of accepted, well, you know, the stories are half as long and not, you know, half as vetted, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And so I think that that's, on the other hand, I, you know, I think the Chronicles in particular has done some really great stuff. And I, you know, I am rooting for the Chronicle. I have, I just, you know, renewing my subscription and um, support it. And, um, but as far as what, what it takes to, let's talk about like the, the, the dignity factor of just having a job in journalism. Like I grew up in an era where at the tail end where I was like, oh, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You know, this is your career. You'll have a, you know, 401k, a pension. I think I, I think I get a pension. I worked there for 10 years. So I, I think eventually I'll get one. I'm always ready to find out some paperwork I didn't fill out or something like that. But, but that sense of like, this is a job that has value the work you do and you get um, paid for it. You get, you know, reasonable benefits, a sense of job security. I'm, you know, I've kind of gone up and down with my whole, um, feelings for union and labor. And I think I've come back to being much more pro union, than even before, and particularly with journalism, because to do that kind of work, 
to really question authority and challenge, you know, and report on uncomfortable, you know, things that most people don't want to see in print. You need to have that job security. You need to have that kind of um, sense of like, you're not constantly worried about um, getting laid off. And, and, And maybe that sounds like entitlement, but I think at the very minimum, I guess really reinforces my belief that I believe union journalism is more important than ever. And you're, and there's a big wave of that going around the country right now. Um, so a little, a little late to the game, but I guess better late than never. I, I am very, you know, was very disillusioned with just how unorganized and how unfocused a lot of the union, um, the people who were being entrusted to take care of that. And that's not like to point any one person out as a bad, because in journalism, we have this tendency to say good person, bad person. And I think for me, that's probably been the biggest lesson because I remember if I cringe at anything from, from when I spoke out, I remember saying good people versus bad people. Again, the whole Jehovah's Witness thing too, the whole kind of like, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. I'm 43 now. So I, you know, I've, I've come to realize that, you know, if I could go back and talk to that, uh, uh, self-righteous kid, you know, I'd probably, you know, who I'd, I'd probably say, you know, get probably have a little more focus of of what you're asking people to do, yeah. you know, and, um, and realize that you can't also, you it can't be us versus them, good versus bad, right versus wrong when you're trying to negotiate for job security and that kind of stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. And I, that's a lesson I've learned since then. Yeah. But what I like about it is your passion that, I mean, we could look back at, I mean, I look back at all, you know, I feel like everything I've done is a mistake, but I still get to do things that I do with passion. And so then it's like, oh, okay, well, those mistakes were needed to get here. Absolutely. And also it's development, it's growth, but also, and like you mentioned passion. I mean, that's really, I mean, that's what's kind of, I see as missing from a lot of journalism Yeah, is... Yeah, I mean, it's there. I mean, there are people, there are certain people who like, that's their, you know, they cover whatever it's technology or they cover the, the, you know, the warriors or whatever, and they're clearly passionate about it and they're in a groove and they're great. But, you know, there's also a sense of like, just a sign of the times of like, you know, while I am nostalgic for that um, concept of like, kind of what it meant to be a reporter and the kind of, you know, this is my career, this is what I do. You know, we, we live in such a weird world now that... um it's, you know, like I, I've looked at a couple of jobs, I uh, remember, um, you know, for journalism and I, and I have, uh, you know, I'm happy with the work I'm doing now, but I'm always, oh, you know, I, I, God, if I could just write and interview people, oh my God, that sounds like yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty cush job at this point. But, you know, I look at, so every once in a while I look at journalism jobs and I'll see like, oh, and it's like must have Twitter following, must have, and I'm just like, oh my uh, God. I, yeah, yeah. You know, this is like, that's not passion. That's not integrity. That's not, that's just branding, you know, and that's not just journalism. That's just the world we live in. And that's kind of, you know, when I try to, um, what's the word? Um, moderate, uh, not moderate. That's a terrible way of putting it. Um, uh, get the most mileage out of my passion and things, you know, I, I start, you know, I, Part of me would love to, you know, I'd love to, to get back in that fight. Um, and who knows, maybe someday I will. 
It's like it's the same weird shit in like Hollywood where they're just like, oh, you're a writer, and then and then they want to know your Twitter following, and I'm like, I'm like, no, because I don't do 140 characters. I write long form. <laughs> it's yeah. just like I don't give a shit. They're like text messages to the world. Yeah, is, exactly. is basically what it yeah. what it what Twitter feels like to me. But so I work. So in the last ten years, so my first job out of journalism. Oh, can we, okay, yeah. before we go there. So after that, you did honor journalism by writing a novel called Death yeah. of a Newspaper Man. Let's let's talk about the genesis of that and um, yeah. and kind of like uh, essentially what brought you to write that and how that process was. And then coming coming out of it, did you even learn more about kind of journalism and your relationship with it? Yeah, I mean, I was at that point. All all of what I just described was kind of going down when I came up with the idea to write a novel about that I felt essentially was like, this is what it was like to work for a newspaper in that era yeah. of like right at the end of right, right really at the turn of the century, right from yeah. 2000, you know, the character. I mean, her Kane was still alive. When you yeah. yeah. Uh, no, he no. died right before I got there. He died oh. in like 97, oh, okay. but I wrote a lot of stuff in his office actually. Uh, oh, fun. I did. And I, that the story I wrote about Nico, the concrete commando, which is a story about a guy who wrote his name in the sidewalks in San Francisco. And that's, that's on McSweeney's, right? Because that's a must read for the, the rumpus. Okay. And then NPR did a really nice feature on it that they that they air like around the holiday season. It was about 2010. Yeah. That was going to be a big chronicle story. That was kind of like, a you know, it was a story of like the San Francisco mystery of a guy who wrote his name in the. North Beach, Telegraph Hill, Chinatown sidewalks, uh, where he'd leave little clues about who he was and what year he wrote it. And I used public records to track him down and I found him and I told him story. And it was going to be a huge story in the Chronicle. It was going to be like a 10 day series. Oh, right. In fact, I have somewhere the mock ups where you can see where it's on the Chronicle um, front page. And uh, beautiful illustrations by Paul Madonna. We did all this you know, all multimedia stuff. And, um, and then people associated chips kept getting laid off and it went from like, well, we're not doing a 10 page series, a 10 part series anymore. And so I had the story where, um, I really wanted to come out and then Paul Madonna reached out to me and through the rumpus and said, well, let's publish it. And, uh, so that came out and, um, and that was kind of, a. But during, that was like my last real story that I was really fighting for at the Chronicle. So while everything was kind of falling apart, um, I started, you know, well, I want to write a novel. I've always wanted to do that. And so I started um, writing a ex- uh, story about that experience. Anyways, I wrote the Nico story in Herb Kane. That's why I was bringing that up. Oh, in okay, Herb, yeah. Herb Kane's office, that was yeah. pretty cool. But uh, the novel for me was just basically, you know, I mean, I had all this frustration and all this kind of, um, you know, all the negative feelings that, that I think at that era of the Chronicle, I can't speak for what it's like now because I don't know, but people were, while they're now sort of celebrating how awesome their Twitter following is and how wonderful, just like anybody does on social media and Instagram, in reality, they were freaking out for their jobs and they were pissed and they were, I mean, that that was, there was a palpable negativity in the newsroom, not just the Chronicle, but I'm sure across the country. And it's happening now too. I mean, based on you know people I know and uh, who aren't doing what they should be doing with their lives anymore. So I, I instead of like um, as a writer, with suddenly no more stories to write for the Chronicle, they were taken away from me, and the Nico story not 
you know, that one was the, the one that hurt the most. Um, I wanted to explore these feelings. And I thought, instead of being the kind of person who's like, well, we had a good run and I, you know, I did journalism and it was wonderful. And it's like, I'm like, fuck this. Like I'm, you know, when I think of the Chronicle or, or the newspaper journalism, I, I feel pissed off. I feel taken advantage of. I feel, uh, you know, like I want to stand up for other people who got screwed over. And so for me, I wanted to explore those and, um, and portray kind of also San Francisco as a city in, in changing identities for sure. And so that, that's essentially what the book, the actual title of the book is death of a newspaper man. Uh, the editor has no clothes chronicling the lo- No, It's actually the editor has no clothes chronicling the lonesome death of a newspaper man. It didn't all fit on the cover, but, uh, but rare bird put it out. Uh, and, uh, we did some illustrations from one of my musician friends from Benicia did some great drawings and, um, and it, it was kind of, you know, it was a wave when I wrote it. I just, I wasn't really thinking because so much of, of journalism and the kind of newspaper industry of like, it's an ongoing story. Nobody's figured out at this point, you know, how we're going to fix it, quote unquote, or how to make it like the old days where it's a stable job and, and I think, in particular, I think the Chronicle. There's a lot of good things that I see coming out of out of fighting for good quality journalism. Um, but I, I kept thinking, well, in a hundred years, you know, what would people want to know what it was like? And so that that was for me. Yeah. That was how I kind of got to the end of of writing it all the way through. So it was trying to envision what it was like to be a newspaper journalist in San Francisco between the mid '90s to late 2000. Nine, some, so that, that was the spirit of it. Fun stuff, Dell. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This has been great. Uh, likewise. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a Bible scripture I'd like to. Yes. Please. <laughs> <laughs> In the beginning, the word was, and the word was the bird. Bird is the word. How do you? How do you? Uh, como, como se dice amen in español? Como se dice que? Amen. Amen. That's it. Ah, god damn it. It's like saying, como se dice quesadilla en español. Yeah. <laughs> quesadilla. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's great to see you as always. And uh, yeah, let's keep on. Delphine Vigil, check out his book, Death of a Newspaper Man, out on Rare Bird Lit, as well as Nico Concrete Commando. And that's a collaboration with artist Paul Madonna. Delphine is also the lead singer of the band Amoros Vigilantes. What? You want to write a novel? But you have no, but you have an idea and are not sure where to go. You've written 50 pages and put it away, confused and wondering where to go next. Fear not. I'm teaching a few courses on writing. My online beginning novel class starts on March 4th and it will take you through the process in six weeks. Go to TonyDuchesne.com for more information. I'm also teaching on campus at UCLA in spring on Tuesday nights and the first Wednesday of every month at Los Feliz Library in Los Angeles. Coming up is say on segment two is my interview with Ned Vizzini from the Drinks with Tony archives. And uh, note, this tape was taken directly off of our clunky MP3 web server at the time, probably around 2005 when, um, you know, like, People still listen to radio and didn't think podcasts were going anywhere. All right, Ned Vizzini coming right up. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is author Ned Vizzini, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony on Pirate Cat Radio. 
Jeremy here uh, is your average high school dork with no pussy blues. Day after day, he stares at a beautiful Christine, the girl he can never have, and dryly notes the small defeats that come his way until he gets a squip. A supercomputer in pill form, the squip communicates directly with your brain to make you cool. By instructing Jeremy on what to wear, how to talk, and who to ignore, the squip transforms Jeremy from a computer complete geek to a member of the social elite. Soon he is friends with his former tormentors and has the attention of the hottest girls in school. But Jeremy discovers that there is a dark side to handling handing over your control, the control of your life, and it has disastrous consequences. That is um, the description of Vizzini's first novel, Be More Chill. His second novel was called it's kind of a funny story and that was loosely based on his stint in a mental hospital when he suffered from severe depression and called a suicide hotline because uh, he was ready to kill himself and the um, the lady on the other line suggested that he check, him, check himself into a hospital uh, and what ensued was a short stay in a mental institution and a book a couple of years later. Ned Vizzini, our guest tonight on Drinks with Tony. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, piratecatradio.com. Here's segment one of my interview with Ned Vizzini. Since we're talking a a bit about uh, your book, Be More Chill, um, I love that you killed Eminem in it. Um, Yes, I killed killed Eminem, and at the time when I wrote the book, I thought that was sort of a... um, that was sort of a a bad idea because, you know, I mean, I toyed and be more chill with having a lot of pop culture references, which I'm scared to do because I'm worried that they won't age well. Do you, you see what I mean? Uh-huh. And in um, Be More Chill, Killing Eminem, I thought was clever, but then I thought, oh, well, gosh, you know, maybe someday, if I'm lucky, people will be reading this book when they don't really know or care who Eminem is, you know? But luckily, Eminem has remained in the spotlight um, for long enough that, you know, the book is still in print and he's still in action. So keep going, Eminem, and so my book stays relevant. <laughs> well, uh, this is kind of sinister, and I'm not wishing him dead, but it, it would have been really cool marketing-wise if he got killed before the book was published. I don't know if I want to even respond to that because what if he gets mad and we start to eat? <laughs> okay, okay. I I have a um, when I appeared on the Today Show uh, in conjunction with Be More Chill, I thought afterwards I absolutely should have said something on the show about the fact that he died in the book because maybe we could have gotten some beef going, and of course that would be very good for book sales. But you know, I'm, sometimes these opportunities pass us by. <laughs> well, do you think there would actually be a literary versus rap world uh, beef? <laughs> I, I no, I don't think so at all because I'm not important enough to be on Eminem's radar. But it would be fun if it happened, wouldn't it? I mean, I have a lot of respect for rap, especially freestyle rap as literature. There's a lot of evidence that the um, Iliad and Odyssey were essentially freestyle raps. Uh, do you have a writing schedule? Do you write every day? Yeah, my routine is not having a routine. I have gone back and forth from, you know, it used to be that I basically wrote when I felt guilty for not writing, um, which could be, you know, there would be breaks of days um, uh, or even weeks. And then I tried to do what Stephen King says you should do and write 3,000 words a day. 
but that kind of drove me crazy. Um, and my friend points out, you know, that's Stephen King, like all doors are open to him, you know what I mean? Um, and now, basically, I don't have a word count, but, you know, every day I have a schedule of things I need to do per day, and I made it my desktop background, which is something I recommend everybody do. So whatever you're doing on the computer, the background tells you, mine says floss, you know, and get food and go outside and read 100 pages or one magazine and write and then do my blogs. So that's, that's the schedule right now. And does that fill up your whole day pretty much? Oh, yeah. That fills up my whole day. And then the last item is go out, you know, because it's important to go out, too, and, uh, you know, meet with your colleagues and, uh, you know, um, have fun. Otherwise, you go a little nuts. Right. But it's taken me a long time to learn all this stuff. So, um, so, cause, cause writing's a lonely process. So there, there was a point when, uh, uh, what, now that you have to remind yourself to go out where you were more secluded, I guess is the right word. Or? Well, I mean, I went through a very serious depression where I wasn't going out at all. And, um, you know, that was, that's absolutely, it's very important to not get into this mindset where all of a sudden, you know, you're not answering the phone and you're shutting yourself off from the world. It can be very insidious, you know. You decide not to go out one day and then you decide not to answer your phone when a friend calls and then all of a sudden you're uh, you're in big trouble. So I really try to avoid that by obeying what my computer desktop tells me to do. Ned Vizzini, my guest tonight on Drinks with Tony. He's the author of It's Kind of a Funny Story and Be More Chill. We'll be right back with more from him. Tonight, our guest on Drinks with Tony is Ned Vizzini, author of It's Kind of a Funny Story, coming out on paperback on May 1st. So check that out when it comes out. Here's segment two of my interview with Ned. You're listening to Pyrocat Radio and Drinks with Tony. It was a strange, strange experience writing It's Kind of a Funny Story. It was written very quickly. And I was just, it was almost like I was in a trance. I, I mean, I was, I just remember I was sweating a lot and writing, you know, dozens and dozens of pages a day and listening to John Coltrane. And um, I don't even listen to John Coltrane, but I was then. I, I can't explain it. But, you know, it, uh, I, it's definitely, you know, not, not lighthearted. Uh, the, the the process wasn't lighthearted in the book, while ultimately positive. I don't view as being lighthearted. You know, I just think that there's humor everywhere, and that humor can save us even when we're at our worst. And that's kind of what it's kind of a funny story is about. Um, so we, you talked a little bit earlier about your depression, and uh, the book "It's a Kind of uh, Funny Story" was loosely based on a real life experience, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, like. Many, many, many people, I, um, uh, you know, went through a very serious depression in my life. It happened to coincide both with the publication of my second book and also with my high school 10th year, re no, I'm sorry, five-year anniversary, you know, reunion. Uh -huh. And I had also just been on that Today Show, so, you know, I had every reason to be very proud of myself um, at my uh, high school reunion. But instead of being at the high school reunion, I was, you know, sitting under a blue television in a communal dining room with, you know, um, some, you know, an, an individual who was convinced that, you know, the government was insecticiding their apartment. You know what I mean? So it was a, it was a different story. I was in the mental hospital, um, and it, you know, it turned into an important book for me. 
and a book that seems to have helped a lot of people. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I, it was great. I loved it. Um, Thanks. Yeah, well, I mean, and I, I know the suicide theme myself because I've had uh, relatives and friends kill themselves. So it was... Uh, it's, it's a serious, serious problem. I mean, it's like uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I could go and get them, but the number that really hits me in reference to it's kind of a funny story is that um, adolescent depression, you know, diagnosed adolescent depression is, uh, has doubled in the last 10 years, doubled, you know, which is just, it's kind of terrifying. It makes you wonder kind of what's happening in our society and our culture to freak people out so much. And I have my own ideas and, um, a lot of other, uh, smarter people have theirs. And then plus, uh, being at that age, it's really hard to, um, to, to admit to other people or feel like you can't talk to other people who, uh, who would understand. So a book like yours makes even more difference, right? To open up the subject or. I feel that that may be the most dangerous thing is that people feel like it's not something that can be talked about. Um, you know, when do we, uh, that stigma is, is getting, uh, less bad, (laughs) Getting better, there would be a better English way to put it. Um, the stigma, you know, is being removed somewhat, but yes, there's still, you know, a, a number of people who really suffer needlessly. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, the, the the world at large is hit to the fact that this is a serious problem and that mental health is real, and we learn more every day about the chemistry behind it. And if you were, if you had a kidney problem, you wouldn't be ashamed of it. And so, you know, I hold that if you have a brain chemical problem you shouldn't be ashamed of it either and you might get a great book out of it i don't advocate (laughs) going into the psych hospital to try and write your own it's kind of a funny story um i happened to to get really lucky and have a kind of you know i don't know what to call it i call it a crucible sometimes a really you know, intense experience that I was able to turn into a book. But you can write your own. It's kind of a funny story based on a whole ton of other things. So uh-huh. I don't want to send anybody into the hospital to further their career. Okay. Oh, do you still go to therapy? No, I stopped therapy. I don't know how helpful it really was, and I stopped it. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been okay for a while. Um, the update on my mental health situation is that it appears more and more that, like so many other people, I was essentially misdiagnosed. And while I was um, told that I had unipolar depression, which is another word for just straight out, you know, flat out normal depression, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually manic depression. And so I just had very, very, very long depressive episodes and very short manic ones. It took me a while to realize that. I got an inkling that it was true when I spent about $700 on Xbox 360, you know, without remembering that I don't ever play video games at all. So um, they put me on new medication, and I'm doing a lot better. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not Tom Cruise about this. You know, my opinion is that you should try everything. Try right, hypnotism, right. try different drugs, try whatever you can. People get really discouraged because... Whatever they're doing, they when it doesn't work, they give up on it and think that nothing will work. And when studies consistently show that people who try different medications 
you know, can overcome mental illnesses of all stripes. Power Cat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, 104.7 FM, Los Angeles, www.piratecatradio.com. Tonight, Ned Vizzini is our guest on the program. His book, It's Kind of a Funny Story, will be released in paperback on May 1st. We'll have more from him in a minute. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. And what about... Uh... Also, you know, one thing, one thing too, uh, Tony, like many, many, many people... You get the title of the book slightly wrong. It's kind of a funny story. I get it's a funny kind of story. It's kind of a story. It's hard to do. The kids seem to all get it right, but uh, <laughs> adults seem to sometimes have a hard time with it. <laughs> what did I just call it? Something else? Oh, you've been calling it different things throughout the whole interview, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, that's that's the uh, that's, that's the hangover from last night. It's kind oh, of a boy. funny story. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's kind of a funny hangover. <laughs> exactly. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, are you working? Do you have another novel in progress? I'm working on an adult novel. Um, I've wanted to move from doing. You know, it's kind of a funny story. Has gotten me a lot of press and attention from the uh, adult world. You know, whereas I mean, it was definitely released and initially marketed as a young adult book. Um, and I've been really, you know, amazed with that because I've always wanted to move into adult writing. And, you know, it's like being a child star. Of course, you're a writer, so, you know, you're much less of a star than anyone on any kind of video format. But, you know, um, starting out young and writing for teenagers and then moving to, or, you know, moving to writing from, from young adults to adults is a really hard transition to make. It, it is like moving from a child actor to an adult actor. So it's something that I'm taking a lot of care with and that I, um, you know, hope to hit it out of the park and come out with a really good balls-out adult novel. Um, and I'm currently working on it as well as reviews. I am on the beat reviewing young adult books at the New York Times, which I'm really thankful for and proud of. And um, uh, also for bookslut.com. And I'm also trying to do some short stories, and for the first time I have a short story coming out on a website soon, and I even am dabbling in poetry. So I'm just trying to, you know, keep moving in different directions and start to uh, navigate this scary large pond of literary fiction. And what's, what's the website your short story is going to be on? Oh, uh, thanks for asking. Dog, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Undergroundvoices.com. Okay, I know those guys. <laughs> well, you know everybody, don't you? No, well, I, I I do a literary magazine called Cherry Bleeds, so that's why I know them. Huh? Cool. Yeah. Well, yep, that's it. That's that's them. And, and I love that because um, for your fans on your website, you uh, make available some of your um, some of your early drafts of your work or some of your edits. Yeah, um, those went pretty. Those went pretty quick. Those um, those ad those early drafts that I offered on the website, and I was really really happy about that because, well, basically, you know what it honestly is more than anything else. I mean, I'm a little OCD in addition to everything else, and uh, you know, once I have um, a, an early piece of writing that I've incorporated in some way, you know, I don't really need it around, so I can get rid of it and feel good that I'm connecting with the readers. You see, it's almost like a house cleaning for me. It's very satisfying. Now, I have also been giving away signed books, and I saw one on eBay for $35. 
which means I should really just be sitting at home signing books all day, I guess. Um, you know, I can get them for uh, half off from the book company, although that's illegal. I can't reach. Anyway, point being, um, I was a little shocked by that. Uh, I'm not going to be giving away that many more signed books, you know. When when you when you started writing, which was uh, really young, um, right? When, um, were your how how did your parents react when your stories were getting published and some of them were uh, some of the um, subject matter was about your parents? Oh well, you know the reason that I don't do nonfiction anymore as a rule is that it's very damaging to the people around you. You know your parents, your friends. I mean, you change names, obviously. And that helps a little bit, but it's just, you know, some people are happy, and they are they like the attention, and they feel like, oh, great, man, you know, I'm famous now, I'm in a book. But um, the vast majority of people are really put off by, by being in, um, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a public forum that way, and can feel used or angry. Uh, and so I don't do it anymore. My parents were pretty cool about it. But, you know, they're professional people, and they don't need to go to a trade show and have the first thing they hear be, hey, you got a writer in the family? My son read your son's book, you know? Especially because there was a lot of humor in those books, and a lot of it was hinged on their, um, you know, the, the, on the ridiculousness of their uh, lives, you see? So, um, it, uh, you know, people really do feel exploited, and one of the things I tell young writers is to always be very careful writing about people that they know. What, what, what drove you to um, send, send in your short stories? Um, what motivated you to send them to the New York press and to get the ball rolling uh, so young? Fear of death. That's a great answer, actually. Do, do you ever get writer's block? I do, and I have a strategy for beating writer's block. I don't remember where I read it, but I read somewhere that... If you have writer's block, that means that something in the story, in the narrative, in the novel, is wrong, structurally wrong, or there's a character who's not really acting the way that they should act. Um, and you have to ferret it out. You have to look through the book, find where that problem is, and fix it. And then you can keep going. And I've found this to be true um, all the time. You, 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 you look for you realize, hey, uh, this character wouldn't really... In the book I'm working on now, I'll give an example. Um, it, it's, it has an indie rocker in it, you know, a, a failed indie rocker, guitar player, singer. And I realized, after watching a movie about the indie rock world, that I don't tackle drugs in the book at all. I didn't have him doing any drugs. I didn't talk about drugs. And the fact is, the indie rock world is full of drugs. And so... The fact that they, the drugs weren't part of the narrative made it insincere. And so now I'm going and introducing a drug dealer and making that part of the narrative. And so my writer's block with that book, which was intense and almost sent me back into the freaking psych hospital, has now been alleviated a little bit. Thanks for listening. And next week on the show, we have Gabriel Hart of J.O. Weddings discussing his twin novellas, Virgins in Reverse and The Intrusion. See you next Wednesday.